Good morning once again, everyone. Well, in the course of our series, The Battle for Truth, we have the uh, last couple of weeks been looking at a question, a very important question, especially given the day in which we're living when many people don't even believe that God exists. The question we've been looking at is, how can we know that God exists? And we said the Bible gives us two main proofs for the existence of God. The creation is the external testimony of God's existence. Paul said that, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that the people of this world are without excuse. God will hold them accountable on the day of judgment if people in this world say, look, I didn't know there was a God, I couldn't know there was a God. God will say to them, I've revealed myself through the creation. You should have known of my existence through the creation. Even as the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The universe shows forth his handiwork. So we have the external evidence or the testimony of the creation, but also we have the internal testimony of our conscience. We talked about this last week. Every person on the face of the earth possesses an innate sense of right and wrong. Evolutionists can't explain this. How do chemical processes produce morality? They can't explain it. But the Bible says that our God, who was a good and moral God, created us and wrote his laws on our hearts. We all know what's right and wrong. And then he gave us a conscience to warn us when we violate what he says to do. And so those are two very powerful proofs for the existence of God. Now, I was planning to move on this morning, but I began to think about it this week. We're not really giving our skeptic or atheist friends a chance to rebut that argument. And believe me, they will rebut you if you present that argument. You present creation, conscience, ready to pray to receive Jesus. Hold on a minute. I have a few things to say to you. And so we want to kind of let them have their say this morning. Because at this point, the atheist and skeptic would argue if an all-powerful God exists who created the universe... And if he is all good, who put morality into the heart of man to show us that he is a good and moral God, then why does evil exist in the world? Now, folks, this is the most powerful argument ever devised against the existence of God. It goes like this. If God is all good so that he would eliminate evil, and if he is all powerful so that he could eliminate evil, Yet evil is not eliminated, therefore an all-good, all-powerful God cannot exist. He might be partly good and partly powerful, but he can't be both, all-powerful and all-good. Because if he was all-good, he would eliminate evil. If he was all-powerful, he could eliminate evil. Evil is still with us. It hasn't been eliminated. And since evil has not been eliminated, no such God exists. Now, this is a very common view of God today, by the way, and it's been popularized by people like Rabbi Harold Kushner in his best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. When that book hit the um, bookstores, it immediately shot up to number one on the New York Times bestseller list and remained there for months, I think it was over a year, because he hit a nerve. Everybody wants to know why bad things happen to good people. And so Rabbi Kushner presented his thesis, I guess you'd call it, 
And in the book, his conclusion was, look, God is a good God. He does love us. And the reason that bad things happen to good people is because God's not all-powerful. He can't help it. He can't help all the evil things that happen to people because he's just not strong enough to prevent it. Now, folks, that is not our God. That is not the God of the Bible. He is all-powerful. He is all good. But, again, the atheist and skeptic believe that they have an airtight argument against the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God. And here's the argument again. If God is all good so that he would eliminate evil, if he's all-powerful so that he could eliminate evil, yet evil is not eliminated, therefore an all-good, all-powerful God cannot exist. The problem with the argument is that it's built on a faulty assumption that just because evil hasn't been eliminated yet, it never will be. If the atheist phrased the argument correctly, it wouldn't prove his point. If he said, if there is an all-good God who would eliminate evil, and an all-powerful God who could eliminate evil, and since he hasn't yet eliminated evil, he can't exist. Well, how would you answer that? Well, just because he hasn't eliminated evil yet, doesn't mean he's not going to someday. See, if the atheist could say with absolute certainty, if God is all good, he would. If he is all powerful, he could. Evil has not been eliminated, and it never will be. Therefore, no such God exists. Now he's got a good argument. Because how could we maintain the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God if at one point he didn't eliminate evil, right? So if they could say that with all certainty... And, and, and know that it was true, they'd have a powerful argument against the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God. But for a person to make a statement like that and, know, and, and say it with all certainty, they would have to be themselves all-knowing. They would have to know the future perfectly, which, of course, is impossible unless you're God. See, the book of Revelation tells us that one day God is going to settle all accounts. People think that evil people are getting away with things, folks. They're not getting away with anything. Maybe in the short term. The book of Revelation teaches us that someday he is going to have everyone stand before him. The books will be opened. And every sin, every deed, every thought, every action against the will of God that those people perform, they will have to give an account for on the day of judgment. And God will judge them. And God will eliminate from the planet Earth and from the universe... All evil someday. But criticizing God for not doing it right now is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot yet. The story isn't over with, folks. I mean, we're not at the end yet. The end is coming, but we're not there yet. Now, the atheist would then argue this. Well, all right, if God is all good and all powerful, as you say, and he made everything, then where did evil come from? God must have created evil, which means he can't be all good or else evil would not exist. Now, maybe you've heard this argument too. And again, they think this is an airtight case against the existence of an all-good God. If he's all good and he made everything all-powerful, where did evil come from? There's evil in the world, therefore God must have created it, therefore he's not an all-good God. Well, Augustine in 400 AD said this, and I quote, To say God created everything, evil is something, therefore God created evil, is to miss the real nature of evil. 
God is the author of everything. We accept that premise. But evil is not a thing. It is a lack in a thing. Hence, it does not follow that God is the author of evil, end quote. Or, to put it in other terms, Norm Geisler, Christian apologist and professor, said, and I quote, Evil is a privation or a lack. Evil is like rust to a car or rot to a tree. It's a kind of parasite. It exists only in something else. The Bible teaches that a good God created a good universe, but gave man a good thing called free will. Who here thinks that freedom is bad? Who has ever seen a march where people are marching against freedom? Down with freedom, back to bondage, that kind of thing. <laughs> freedom is good. We all acknowledge that. Nothing wrong with freedom. So a good God created a good universe, gave man a good thing called free will, which allowed for the possibility for evil to enter God's universe and corrupted, end quote. And so God made evil possible by giving us a good thing called free will. Just like Henry Ford made every automobile accident in America possible. And all the pain and fatalities that they have brought, are we to say then that cars are evil? And the man who invented them is evil? Simply because the people driving those cars haven't always acted responsibly behind the wheel? So the Bible teaches that this world is not the world God originally created us to live in. We messed it up. You know, this was not God's first choice for us. Uh, he gave us a free will which, which made evil possible. But you have to understand something that it's manifestly wrong to look at a world tainted by sin and man's rebellion, which is now reaping the consequences of all of that sin and rebellion, and look at God and say, well, how could he be a good God to allow all this or to do this to us? I mean, come on. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have free will, oh man, and exercise that free will against what God has said, and then when the consequences come, blame God for them. But some would ask, but did God know we were going to sin before he made us? Yes. Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And that simply means that before God even made the world and made man, he already knew we were going to blow it, and the plan of salvation was already in the mind of God. Calvary was already a reality in the mind of God, even before he spoke the world into existence. So yes, God knew before he ever made us that we were going to mess up. So then you ask, well, then if God knew before he ever created us that we were going to blow it, why did he let us? Why did he stop us? You mean, why didn't he force us? Well, that would have removed our free will. And God did not want robots. He did not want automatons. Robots, of course, would have obeyed perfectly because they had no choice. It would have been programmed into their circuitry, and God could have programmed robots to do his will perfectly, to say that they loved him constantly. But come on, is that meaningful love? I mean, you're not going to get meaningful love, folks, out of robots. Meaningful love has to be freely given, which means you have to give people a free will and choice so that they will freely express their love and primarily through obedience. True love cannot exist unless freely given through free will and choice. Forced love is rape. God is not a divine rapist. Norm Geisler put it this way, and I quote, Now, the classic defense of God against the problem of evil is that it's not logically possible to have free will and no possibility of moral evil. 
In other words, once God chose to create human beings with free will, then it was up to them rather than to God as to whether there was sin or not. That's what free will means. Built into the situation of God deciding to create human beings is the chance of evil and consequently the suffering that results, end quote. And so the skeptic cries, aha, so then God is the creator of evil. Well, Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for Faith, page 37, said, and I quote, no, he created the possibility of evil. People actualize that potentiality. The source of evil is not God's power, but mankind's freedom. Even an all-powerful God could not have created a world in which people had genuine freedom, and yet there was no potentiality for sin, because our freedom includes the possibility of sin within its own meaning. It's a self-contradiction, a meaningless nothing, to have a world where there is real choice, while at the same time no possibility of choosing evil. To ask why God didn't create such a world is like asking why God didn't create colorless color or round squares, end quote. Someone else would say, well, if he knew we'd bring so much evil and heartache into the world, well, then why did he even bother to create us in the first place? Because God is love, and God wanted to share his love with us. Not because he needed to, God doesn't need us for anything, but because he wanted to. And God knew there was going to be problems along the way. Along the way from creation to the culmination where we all stand in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 singing his praises around the throne forever and ever. God knew there were going to be problems along the way. But you know, when my wife and I decided to have children, we knew before my wife ever got pregnant that there was the potential for problems. Maybe our children will be born or one of our children will be born handicapped or with some genetic condition, or maybe when they grew up, they would rebel. We understood that there was the potential for problems. But when you have this love that you want to bestow upon children, you take that chance. Now, God wasn't taking any chances. He knew exactly what we were going to do, which makes his love even more powerful. Because he knew you and I, before he ever created us, he knew exactly what we were going to do, he knew how many times we were going to blow it, how many times we were going to rebel, and he still created us, and he still chose to love us. That's real love. As someone has said, the only way to get to the promised land was through the wilderness. The only way to form diamonds is to put pressure on coal. The only way to produce second-order good is to allow first-order evil. If you never allow evil, you'll never be able to defeat it. If you never allow sin, you'll never have the higher good of forgiveness. If you never allow tribulation, you'll never produce patience. And so God allows certain things. He allows suffering, and he allows evil to bring about the greater good. Listen, he permits evil, but he does not promote evil. Very important point. God permits evil, but he does not promote evil. Now, again, I can hear someone say, yes, but evil is bad. If God is good, why doesn't he protect us from it? Well, again, we have to remember, God did not want us to live in a world of evil and suffering, but he had to give us a free choice. We exercised that free choice in rebellion against what God said, what God wanted. That brought into the world sin, and sin brought with it selfishness and death and consequences that we all live with every day. But it was man's Free will that brought about the condition of the world that we see around us today. Now, 
because this is the world we have chosen to live in. God is using our choice to bring about his ultimate purposes. So he's using the suffering to break the hard-hearted, to bring them to Christ. And he's using the suffering to break his children of selfishness, to bring them closer to Christ. So these things are now serving God's ultimate purposes. Again, as Norm Geisler pointed out, and I quote, This is not the best of all possible worlds, but I think it's the best of all possible ways to get to the best of all possible worlds. A true believer is something like tea. Their real strength comes out in hot water. God permits suffering to produce the greatest virtues in us. Job said, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. End quote. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. He said, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. James said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So we can see how that God uses trials, adversity, and suffering to refine us, to grow us, to strengthen us, and ultimately to conform us into the image of Christ who also was a suffering servant, a man acquainted with sorrows and suffering and so on. And so God allows pain to bring about the greater good. And every athlete, especially an Olympic athlete, understands this. Any one of you guys and gals who was ever involved in athletics, whether it was track and field or, you know, maybe guys football or, or wrestling or something like that that required a lot of training, you know, you remember how difficult that training was. A lot of pain, especially if you're an Olympic athlete. The pain and suffering that comes through training. You say, well, why do they do it? For the joy of victory. For the joy of victory. If the joy of victory was not greater than the pain it took to get there, nobody would endure the suffering of training. The athlete suffers the training and suffers the pain with regard in, uh, that comes with training because he wants to achieve the greater good. But also, I want you to understand, there's a lot of people that can't understand why, even if man messed up, and this world is the product of man's rebellion, why God doesn't just fix it and restore it the way it once was, problem-free, pain-free. They feel that way because they're harboring under a false assumption, and that is this that the absence of all suffering in the world would be the greatest good for mankind. Think about that. There are many people who believe it's wrong for a good God to allow people in this world to suffer, even though it was our own rebellion that brought suffering into the world. But now God is using it. But they think it's wrong that God uses pain and suffering. God should wipe it all away because it's bad to suffer. It's pain is bad. Pain is not bad. Pain is actually good. Athletes have a saying, no pain, no gain. In the Christian life, that is also true. Not that we love to suffer. It's just that suffering produces a lot of good things in our lives. And so if God removed all suffering from the... Think about this. If God removed all suffering from the world right now, it wouldn't make us better. 
It would make us shallow and selfish. And yet there are many people who feel that a God of love would never or could never use suffering or pain for any good in our lives. But let me ask you the question, is it possible that God could and does use suffering and tragedy to teach us important lessons, lessons that help us to grow as believers and draw close to God in a way that nothing else would? Let me put it to you this way. Can God take what Satan intended for evil and use it for good? God made a good world. Satan took the form of a serpent, tempted Eve, because he wanted mankind to fall. He wanted to work evil in this world, and he has. But now let me ask you, can God take what Satan intended for evil and turn the tables on him and use it for good? Let me give you the ultimate example of that. Let me tell you about the worst thing that ever happened in the history of mankind and how it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened in the history of mankind. What Satan intended for the ultimate evil, God used for the ultimate good. What am I talking about? The crucifixion. The night before Jesus went to the cross, in the upper room he told his disciples, in a little while, sorrow is going to fill your hearts. And then in a little while, your joy is going to be full. Now at the time, they had no idea what he was talking about. But we know. In just a few hours, he was going to be nailed to a cross and crucified. And the disciples would have been, were going to be scattered. And in their mind at that moment, that was the worst thing that could have possibly happened in the world. But three days later, when Jesus stepped from that tomb, alive, they realized that what they thought was the greatest evil turned out to be the greatest good. And that's how God works all the time. Don't forget that the God who said, the soul that sins shall surely die, is the same God who said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Folks, when it came to suffering on account of sin, God took his own medicine and became one of us and went to the cross and suffered more than any of us could have ever suffered if we had lived a million lives on this earth. One author put it this way, and I quote, How could you not love this being who went the extra mile, who practiced more than he preached, who entered into our world, who suffered our pains, who offers himself to us in the midst of our sorrows? What more could he do? End quote. Or John Stott, who said, and I quote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world, but each time after a while I have had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering. 
But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours, end quote. Now I know that maybe some of you here are still thinking to yourselves, but I'm still having a problem understanding why a good God permits so much evil in the world and why it touches so many of his people. I wrestle with why do Christians suffer as they do? Why do some Christians die young and other wicked people live to be, you know, ripe old age? J.B. Phillips said, if God were small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever. In other words, God is saying, I can't tell you everything about me. Your brain isn't big enough to hold all that information. I've said it before, let me say it again. You try to take the knowledge of an infinite God and stuff it into my puny little finite brain, there's bound to be a lot of leakage, folks. God is so much greater than we are. He says, look, I revealed as much as you can handle. You're going to have to trust me for the rest of it. Because, as God says to the prophet Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You're going to have to trust me. You're not going to understand all of my ways, and you're certainly not going to understand all the whys of the things I do. But know this. When you and I gave our hearts to Jesus Christ, when we bowed the knee and said, Jesus I am inviting you to become my Lord and my Savior. I am now your servant. You are my master. And however you want to use my life to bring you the greatest glory, then I'm telling you to do whatever you want to do. Folks, it's not about our earthly comfort. It's about his glory. Problem today with the church in general, people's theology is way too man-centered. And therefore, God exists to make me happy. And if God brings pain and adversity to grow me, I think that God is out to get me or acting unfairly towards me. It's all because I'm at the center. If I put Christ at the center of my life, and I see that my life is his, because I've given it to him, to do whatever he wants to do with it to bring himself the most glory, then no matter what happens to me, I rejoice because he's using me. And sometimes he may call upon some of us to suffer greatly for his name's sake. Sometimes he may ask you to give up somebody you love dearly way too early to death because he's going to receive the most glory through that person's death than he would have through their life. Let me kind of bring this to a close by reading you a true story. It's a little long, but I don't think you'll mind once you hear it. It comes out of Jim Simbola's book, Fresh Power, it's a true story about a missionary couple. Let me read it to you. It goes along with everything we've just been talking about. Back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svea Flood went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with a, another young Scandinavian couple, the Ericsons, 
and the four of them sought God for direction. In those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, they felt led of the Lord to set out from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Nadalara, they were rebuffed by the chief, who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Svia Flood, a tiny woman, only four foot eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus, and in fact, she succeeded. But there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In time, the Ericsons decided they had had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station. David and Svia Flood remained near Nadalara to go on alone. Then of all things, Svia found herself pregnant in the middle of that primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born, whom they named Ina. The delivery, however, was exhausting, and Svia Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only another 17 days. Inside David Flood, something snapped in that moment. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife, and obviously I can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. And with that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at age three. This family loved the little girl and were afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in their home country and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hearst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter, then to a son. In time, her husband became president of a Christian college in the Seattle area, and Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who sent it, and of course, she couldn't read the words, but as she turned the pages, all of a sudden, a photo stopped her cold. In a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross. On the cross were the words, Svea Flood. Aggie jumped into her car and went straight for a college faculty member who she knew could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded. The instructor summarized the story. It was about missionaries who had come to Nadalra long ago, the birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, the little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up, and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. 
The article said that gradually he won all his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief had become a Christian. Today there were 600 Christian believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of David in Svea Flood. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with the gift of a vacation to Sweden. There Aggie sought to find her real father. An old man now, David Flood, had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke, still bitter. He had one rule in his family, never mention the name of God because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now, but you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Ina, he said. I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win the whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America, and within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, the Hearsts were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, when a report was given from the nation of Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the National Church, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to him to ask afterward if he had ever heard of David and Sophia Flood. Yes, madam, the man replied in French, his words then being translated into English. It was Svea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug. Then he continued, you must come to Africa to see, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, that is exactly what Aggie Hurst and her husband did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. She even met the man who had been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the mountain in a hammock cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and to give thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12, verse 24, where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He then followed with Psalm 126, verse 5, 
those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Jim Symbol adds this comment. How we live is more important than how long we live. What is the sense of living a long life just to hang around and take up space? I would rather live a few meaningful, fruitful years for Christ than hang on to age 89 and accomplish little. Or as Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred trying to reach the Aka Indians, once said, That man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I, I can't help but just imagine Aggie as she came to that village and all those villagers were cheering. I, I just imagine that's going to be heaven. We finally get there. All the suffering, all the sorrow, all the thinking that our lives really haven't meant anything for Christ. We've ministered and we've suffered and we think we're failures. And we get to heaven, the throngs of people that are going to be cheering because we were faithful. And God used that faithfulness in ways we haven't even understood to bring people to Christ. I know the world can be a painful place. Why does God allow so much pain? C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse a morally deaf world, end quote. Sometimes God has to use pain to get our attention. Just like sometimes you parents have to subject your children to pain, maybe a painful surgery, that if you didn't allow them to go through the surgery, they'd never be healed of some very serious disease. The pain is necessary to save them. We're done, but let me just say this. Why doesn't God put an end to the evil and suffering in the world, folks? He intends to. He intends to. But right now, he's giving people the option, the option of living with him in his kingdom forever, a kingdom that will be established upon the earth that will have no end, really, a kingdom where righteousness is going to reign and peace and joy. He's giving people a chance right now to be a part of that kingdom, a kingdom where there will be no more evil, no more injustice, no more pain, suffering, or death, just like he gave Adam and Eve a choice to live in a paradise but, of course, they rejected God's offer and chose to rebel. Now he's giving everybody on this planet the same choice. You know, people get upset with Adam. I've heard people say, why am I being punished for Adam's sin? Why am I being punished for what he did? If I was there, I wouldn't have done that. Well, you have a chance to prove that every day of your life. Every day of your life, you have a chance to prove that you're going to live in obedience to what God has said as opposed to rebelling against him like Adam did. And God is giving you a chance or a choice right now. If you don't know Christ, he's giving you a choice right now to live in a world where there will be no more suffering or injustice or evil or pain. You know how you become a part of that kingdom? You have to right now bow the knee to the king. Because there can be no entry into the kingdom where a person hasn't bowed their knee to the king and says to Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Wash me of my sins. Take control of my life. You're my king. You're my master. I am your servant. I will do whatever you say. Why don't people run to God's gracious offer? Because they don't want to bow the knee to Christ's authority. They want to do what they want to do. It's not that people don't know there's a God. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Psalm 14, 1. 
The Hebrew is literally, the fool has said in his heart, no, God. No, God. I don't want any God messing up my life, telling me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. And that's why C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, not about marriage, said this, and I'll end with this. In the end, the world will be made up of two groups of people. Those who have said to God, your will be done, and those to whom God will say, your will be done. In other words, right now, God is giving the people of this world an opportunity to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, take my life. I give it to you. You take control of it. I want you to be my master. I want to do your will. Your will be done, not mine. If you do that, then you have eternal life. If, on the other hand, a person says, I don't want God messing with my life. I want to be the captain of my ship, the master of my fate. I want to do my thing. Then when they stand before God someday, God is going to say to them, I wanted so badly for you to live with me forever in heaven. I sent all those goofy Christians around you to witness to you. You made fun of them. You mocked them. You beat up that poor guy. You didn't want to hear it. And so, not my will, but your will be done. And so it's a, an awesome thing to understand that, yes, not only is our God real, he's a good God, an all-good, all-powerful God. No, the world doesn't really indicate that right now. That's why we have to believe by faith what God has said. I am an all-good God, all-powerful, all-good, all-loving. And just because evil has not been eliminated yet doesn't mean it won't be someday. I'm promising it will be. But I'm giving people a chance to come to me now to be a part of that new world order, that kingdom that I'm going to establish where my son will reign. And then there will be true righteousness, no crime, no evil, no injustice, no heartache, no pain, no suffering. But to be a member of that kingdom, you got to right now bow the knee and receive me as your king. May God help everybody in this room who has not done that to do so before you leave here this morning. Father, we thank you so much that even though, Lord, we blew it and blew it badly, you didn't abandon us. You didn't forsake us and go to the other side of the universe and create a new planet with new people in the hopes that they would obey you. Lord, you committed yourself to us. And no matter how much suffering sin has brought into the world, you came down and took upon yourself all of it on the cross. And by doing that, you gave mankind an opportunity to escape eternal punishment and to live with you forever in your kingdom. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you. And, Lord, help us to understand when things happen that we can't understand. Help us to cling by faith to your word, where you said, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Trust me, I love you. You don't always see it from what I allow to happen in your life, but all things are working together for good. Trust me, draw close to me, and I'll give you the grace to endure any suffering or any trial. Thank you, Father. Lord, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.